This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Bohr. I am one of your co-hosts, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, the other co-host, right? That phrasing is weird, but that's okay. <laughs> Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Holly, how are you doing today? Hey, Robert. I'm doing. I'm doing okay today. Um, yeah, I'm doing okay. How are you doing? I am foggy. I think is the best yeah. uh, word that I yeah. have. Yeah. For uh, for a, a lot of reasons, like a whole bunch of things, but that's I think kind of the most. I was thinking about it on my drive over here because I knew obviously that we were going to do this, and uh, yeah. that's I think kind of where I landed was foggy. It's a really good word. I like that. I'm going to use that one. I think we're probably we're probably in a similar space with different things, but do you want to unpack a little bit about that fogginess and how you're doing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, uh, part of it is that I don't feel super great anyway, uh, uh-huh. like physically, right? I think we uh, have a little bit of like cold type thing kind of going on. So mm. gray has been uh, extra, you know, runny nose, things like that. So that is kind of happening. So I have less energy anyway. And you know that these things impact each other, right? So I mean, we know that like kind of from like a bottom up perspective, that information goes both ways. And so when my body feels bad, that, you know, takes some of the energy that potentially I would use to feel cognitively better, maybe, I guess. No, that makes sense. Yeah. But then also, obviously this week, if you're listening to this show, you probably are aware of this, I'm, I'm guessing, but there's been a handful of things. So it was last week, the week we're recording this, right? It was mm-hmm. uh, suicide prevention week and mm-hmm. things like that but on Tuesday I actually like within the span of a couple hours uh got an email from the listserv of like the suicidology listserv about the suicide death of uh, a professional like mental health professional who uh who is the the head of counseling and psychological services at the university of pennsylvania Mm. and then a couple hours later you and i ended up talking and hearing about the um the suicide death of jared wilson who is a a, a pastor and also like a a mental health advocate particularly within christian spaces right which obviously we do a fair share of and so i think those those two things yeah hit harder than and that's not to be flippant about obviously every suicide death you know there's a lot of pain there and and we care about that a lot but I think for me having known Jared some we've interacted a handful of times obviously we we you know cared had similar passions but then also thinking through people that are in spaces where you would think okay they know the resources they know like it's okay to reach out they know you know like people 
who are advocating or working in these types of areas like uh, mental health professionals or advocates or faith leaders, right? Uh, I think that it gives a little bit of like, what are we, what are we doing here? You know, like if, if we're not, even the people who theoretically should be able to reach out and, you know, then like what that that's as someone who works in a lot of those spaces, uh, potentially like discouraging in some ways, Mm. you know, like, man, even, even, the folks who know about some of these things, uh, you know, to, to have losses in that area is, I don't know. It's, and there was a, there was a fantastic article I read this morning that Mm -hmm. uh, quoted Stacey Friedenthal, friend of the show who's Mm, been on um, about kind of this topic of like, what, what does it say that people who are, who are advocates and who do work in these fields uh, also die by suicide. And the flip side of being kind of discouraged is, to use that and say, okay, we know that we need to do better in a number of areas. And so to use that as kind of like a, a, a driving passion yeah. and, and things like that. Yeah. Well, I don't know, but I don't know. I mean, I, I want to, I want to honor, you know, what you're saying and, um, and not in any way. I don't, I hope you don't hear this as me, you know, like disagreeing or, or fighting against or pushing back, because I think that that is, a feeling that sense of like, what are we doing? And like, is it working or not? Um, I think that's an easy place to go to, especially when there's these back to back prominent folks who've died by suicide, who, you know, it's, it's really hard to think, you know, gosh, but they knew the resources and they knew, you know, all these things. But, but I think it also speaks to the complexity of these battles that we're fighting sometimes that people that, that oftentimes like you know many folks don't know about and it's their heavy battles I know you know you mentioned that you know we talked on the phone when um, when the news about Jared had come out and and for I mean it's amazing even just like how we we all each individually process those experiences and and how we're responding to them when they happen. But for me, it was, I mean, I just broke, I mean, you heard, you heard me break into tears of more of this deep grief of like, oh, I hate that he was carrying that much pain and that much suffering and struggling to that degree um, that that was, you know, that that felt like that was the option um, to, to break or to experience relief from that amount of pain. And, and just to think that folks are navigating that amount of pain and suffering that so many people around them don't know the extent of it, I think is, I mean, that's the grief that, that I, I feel like I've been carrying in that news and just other things that have, you know, this week, but I don't want, I really hope you're hearing, like, I'm not in any way saying that, you know, your experience, like that's a, that is a totally valid response. And I also hope that we can also see like this work does matter. It really does matter. And it's, and it's not, you know, and it really sucks when we lose folks to this fight, but it doesn't mean that the fight's not worth it. And, and we need to grieve Jared and we need to grieve those who have have lost this battle. But I don't know. I, yeah, but this it it has been a heavy week. And then knowing that, you know, yesterday we're recording this on on Thursday, knowing that yesterday was the 
you know, anniversary of September 11th. And I mean, I've, I spent some time sitting in that space and just thinking about the folks who had to say goodbye to their loved ones for the last time unknowingly 18 years ago. And, um, and you know, the fact that I was in New York when that happened, I've, I've just had some grief around that. Um, yeah. in addition to, you know, suicide prevention week and, and then like trying to navigate, like, how do we hold this space of grief alongside, you know, the, the good things that are happening too, and to be able to hold space for all of it, it's tricky. And to honor all of the emotions in this space is, can be tricky too. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And just having, learning to be able to sit with all of that through it, it's hard. I mean, it's really hard, but it's, but it's important work. And, you know, I think it also kind of speaks to some of what we're going to be talking about in this upcoming episode with uh, Ryan Kuja, who, um, you know, it's not, it's not directly related to like the mental health piece and, you know, and, and kind of what's going on, but it, it kind of is too. Um, so I want to make sure, you know, that we're, I, I want to be able to, to definitely get out of the way for this upcoming episode to make, you know, to give our listeners um, a chance to dive in right away with what Ryan talks about. But what I think is yeah. really helpful in thinking about what we just talked about and shifting into this upcoming episode is the fact that, you know, what is going on inside of us and what we're wrestling with and what we're experiencing in our biases and thoughts and behaviors, like they, you know, in history, it really does impact the ways in which we go about engaging with the world. And Ryan does a really good job with this. I mean, he focuses primarily on missions work and, um, and how what's, you know, our own layers within are impacting our efforts to go out and do missions work and that we may have the best intentions. And yet, you know, there are a lot of ways in which we can cause harm as we go out into the world embarking on missions efforts. Yeah. But I really want to let him be the one to unpack that in more detail. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, but I think, you know, kind of our conversation and just, you know, all, all that we're carrying within it does relate to this upcoming episode that we have with Ryan. So I hope our yeah. listeners hear that, you know, we're trying to be very mindful of real life right now and also make sure that, you know, we're trying to honor um, our upcoming or our guests well too with, with uh, their episodes and what we get to learn yeah. from them. So let's, I mean, we can go ahead and transition in. We did a little bit of on air processing there, which is fine. But yeah. let's go ahead and transition in and hope you enjoy the interview with Ryan Kuja. Enjoy, y'all. All right. Today, we are so excited to be joined by Ryan Kuja. He is a missiologist. Shoot, did I say that right already or did I mess it up? Missiologist? Missiologist. Yep. You were, you could have gone with it. Could have worked. That's all right. You know what? I'm going to leave it in. It's fine. Uh, Missiologist, a writer, a trauma informed therapeutic practitioner, and spiritual director. He's a global citizen with a background in international mission, relief, and development. He's lived on the front lines of Shalom in 15 cities and rural areas on five different continents all over the place. We can get into some specifics of that, but he has graduate level education in theology, counseling psychology, and humanitarian assistance. He teaches on the integration of 
missional praxis, developing intercultural competency, spiritual formation, psychology, uh, tons and tons of things. He has writing that's published all over the place. And his first book, From the Inside Out, Reimagining Mission, Recreating the World, released in 2018. Ryan, how are you doing? I am doing great. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Excited to uh, to chat. Absolutely. Well, thank you for uh, for joining us. Yes. Holly, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing, Robert? I'm good. I didn't say hi to you, so oh no, it's okay. I just like listening to that fancy bio and just yeah, super excited for this conversation, knowing yeah. the rich wisdom that's in this book that we're going to get to talk about today. Yeah, so. it's such a um, a funny thing in a way, a strange thing to hear a bio, hear your own bio being read back, like <laughs> uh-huh. versus writing it. It's like okay, mm-hmm. do do do. It's just it's like just an interesting experience like and it, and it felt really like long and i don't know <laughs> no you're good no, that's that's funny because i hate when people read a bio like when i'm a guest on a, a show or anything mm-hmm. like that it's yeah. like the worst it uh that like 30 <laughs> second spot i'm like oh this is terrible it makes me sound you know i don't know that uh imposter syndrome but hey so that leads really well into kind of the first question we always ask that was you know a more fancy polished bio but aside from that what should, what should our listeners know about you? Hmm. Great question. Um, let's see. Yeah, I think, um, oh, I could take a million different directions. Um, <laughs> maybe I'll just go with, uh, I feel like I've, I've never known so much about how my own story has shaped me as, as now, like mm-hmm. it, as much as I thought I knew, say, say like, two years ago when I was writing the book or cause there's, there's a bit of self-reflection in the book, even though it's not, it's not memoir, but there's still some mm-hmm. um, yeah. going into my own story, but it's still like, as I, as I look back at that, even it's like, Whoa. And I didn't, I really didn't understand this or that, or this, this piece of my story. And yeah, we're just, uh, we're kind of storied beings in a way. And um, I guess yeah. I'm just continually, continually pressing into into new spaces and kind of new layers. And um, yeah, that work just continues and continues and continues. So yeah. Yeah, That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, um, I know, I mean, certainly you've poured a lot into this book and we're going to dive into it in a little bit and some of the, the depth around this, but could you give us kind of a, an overarching take on what, really motivated you to write this book? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, and that ties back into story again, really, yeah. like the main motivation was, was my own story and coming to terms with, with how I understood mission and cross cultural ministry and, and aid and development work overseas and kind of what what my various roles had been and where I saw um, where I had failed where I had seen things that just didn't just didn't work or or things that just didn't align with with how I see the gospel. Um, and so there's a period of a few years when I was living in Seattle and in seminary at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology, um, I had a I had a lot of space to to, to dive deep there. Uh, personally, academically too, in terms of like reading theology and theologians and missiologists and and integrating like the psychological piece. And so, yeah, I sort of went into these 
these different these different realms and really started to understand like who am i as it uh, who am i regarding mission um and it was definitely a period of deconstruction a uh, lots lots of deconstruction and kind of beginning to reimagine what this kind of cross-cultural ministry could look like and could be and how could it be reframed how could i enter in again in healthier ways because a lot of my a lot of my story as as the book goes into a bit um had to do with had to do with failure and, and collapse in in ministry and um and even mental health diagnoses and so i had to go deep and go deep into all of that i think for for my own sake for the for the sake of my own soul my own health uh, my own integration and that sort of led to the less personal um the less personal and the more sort of formational side academic side looking at um like looking at the foundation of of mission in terms of our, our christian inheritance in history and um reflecting on uh, widespread mis misconceptions in, in cross-cultural ministry and, um, yeah, how we can collectively as Christians, as Jesus followers, do this work better. How can we better embody the gospel across cultures um, in more beautiful ways? Yeah, hmm. that's so good. And I'm thinking about how you had, you know, you talked about in the book that this is something, like this wasn't something that you just decided overnight that you were really interested in and curious about and engaging in missions. But this is something since you were really young mm -hmm. that you were driven or, or attracted to or wanting to, to go into this area. Is that right? That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, since the time I was probably seven or eight, uh, the, the snippet I tell in the book is watching um, cartoons and my cartoons be interrupted by uh, infomercials for the Christian Children's Fund, I believe it was, um, and, and these images of poor uh, African babies, uh, toddlers and, and infants with kind of distended bellies and flies in the eyes. Um, and that sort of, I remember thinking like, man, how can this, like, how can this exist? And why is my life, like, why do I have everything I need? And there's kids, um, kids essentially like me who, who live in this existence, um, live in extreme poverty, who can barely, barely survive. And I just remember like something moving in me way back then, like, like I want to, I want to do something about this. And when I was that little, it was like, well, when I have money, I want to send, you know, my dollar a day or whatever it was, you know, uh, mm -hmm. to support to support one of these and then that sort of morphed into yeah a desire to serve the materially poor overseas but yeah it was that that impulse or that impetus or that that draw was there from a young age and of course that was a very naive sort of position which of course like children are naive and so are supposed to be naive because it comes from an innocent place right just like just knowing that, um, okay, there's something we can do collectively to help this, or, or, or there's something I can do individually to help this. But, but kind of that was obviously, 
uh, divorced from an understanding of, of the complexities of mission and the complexities of poverty relief. And that I, I think that sort of the mindset of that seven and eight year old, that similar naive mindset um, was the same mindset when I started doing this work when I was 20, 21, you know, through my early 20s. Um, still had essentially that, that mindset, if that makes sense, um, which isn't a bad thing because it's about like a posture of the heart in terms of wanting to work on the behalf of others. And yet it's not enough. Mm -hmm. That good intention is certainly, certainly not enough. And that's a lot of what I go into in the book. Uh, Good intentions are a starting place, but certainly not an invitation to to get on a plane or, or fundraise or go think you can show up show up somewhere and help because it's just it's much more complex than that um as as we know yeah yeah well so that's and you you got there because i was gonna ask going from because we kind of flash forward in the book much like kind of we will in the conversation right you go from that picture of kind of this like oh, I'll just kind of go and help, right? Which does seem to be a lot of the way that we kind of think about missions. Like, well, if you are called in some sense, then just like go and kind of figure it out as we go, which that that part of your writing mm-hmm. reminded me of, we, we got to talk mm-hmm. with Jamie Wright a while back and kind of making a similar message, maybe in a different way, but this idea of, well, we'll mm-hmm. just kind of show up and do whatever to help. And what I love about this book is you dive into Hey, I came. I came to the realization that that is not enough, right? That we need kind of some better ways of thinking about yeah. missions. I mean, it's even called reimagining missions. So, can you tell us a little bit about kind of reimagining and and what is it if we're saying, okay, don't just kind of go and do whatever. Mm-hmm. What is it that maybe we need to be moving towards? Sure, sure. So first, I would say, first we have to have a capacity for critical reflection. So yeah, so we tend to just sort of we learn sort of these standards uh, of how mission is to be done from our churches, from our pastors, uh, maybe even in our seminaries and in our our Christian colleges and in the books we read and whatever. But what they tend to do, even the good ones, I'll say this, even the good ones, like um, a great book is One Helping Hurts mm-hmm. or uh, Walking Walking with the Poor. But I feel like a lot of the conversation and the dialogue misses the critical self-reflection on where we've been, especially in terms of history. Like, like where have we been? What is Christian mission? Like, where does it come from? Like, what's its DNA? Like, it got passed down to us from, uh, you know, over, over generations, essentially. And, of course, there are different ways. There's more progressive um liberal ways of doing mission um, and there's more kind of conservative evangelical ways of doing mission but regardless it really doesn't matter because the fact is we all this baggage comes in including colonialism would be would be the obvious thing how mission was really um, married to colonialism going all the way back really to the 15th century and the colonization of the Americas, and then kind of the, the second wave of European colonization uh, with the, the scramble for Africa. Mm. But so we have, regardless of all the details, like we have mission and colonialism growing up side by side, right? And a lot of that has persisted into the present. What I hear often is, well, that's the past, that's the past, like we're not colonialists. Uh, but it's like, it's sort of like, 
it's the past has persisted into the present in, in covert ways. So of course, like, yeah, we're not going overseas as colonists, but there's certainly cultural imperialism that, that's part of mission. Um, there's certainly economic imperialism that's part of mission. So, but we tend not to see it because it becomes this lens through which we see and, and it becomes just normative when in fact there's lots of things tied up in that there's lots of threads that are not about jesus that are not about the gospel Mm -hmm. and so i think the main the point where we can begin to to reimagine and begin to reconstruct a new foundation is is here with reflecting on on history reflecting theologically a lot of theology of mission can be very uh, ethnocentric. It can be very, and often is, very white supremacist. Um, I don't mean that in terms of KKK and overt white supremacy. I just mean rooted in systems uh, of white supremacy and white-dominated spaces. Mm. And so I think there's a, there's a great, I think in order to move toward more integrity and mission, that that's kind of where we where we begin. I think a big second piece, which it goes along with this, is just formation. Um, formation and preparation. We tend to think of that in these in mission circles and mission agencies and, and NGOs that, that do helping work overseas. Um, we tend to talk about uh, sort of, it, it's a very thin and, and flat take on formation and preparation. So it's, so it's often like, okay, we'll learn a, a little bit of the local language. So if we're going to go to Haiti and be in, we know we're going to be in Haiti for three to five years, we better start to learn Haitian Creole and learn just a little bit about, about the context, right? But there's a very, there's not a robust engagement with formation in terms of true intercultural competence, competency, at least developing that, not that we can just automatically be kind of competent crossing cultures because it's mm-hmm. so, it's so complex, but at right. least um, an understanding of culture shapes everything and you can't, you can't ever escape it. Um, and then another big piece is psychological and spiritual formation. We tend to not look at our own stories with regard to, with regard to missions. So we don't, we don't tend to look at, okay, what are my, like, like how might I try to get my needs met, my unmet needs met through the poor? Like, like how is my ego in this? Like where, mm-hmm. where, like, for example, me, I'm a four on the Enneagram. And so my temptation is to, is to have the need to be unique or special. Well, living overseas and serving overseas, like what better way to be looked at as unique, as unique and special, mm. you know, than, than that, or our own need for meaning and purpose. Now it's not to say that we need to look at these things and then be frozen and not take any action or just feel stuck. It's just having more self-reflection in these different, in, in these different realms and starting to see like, okay, where are, where's my potential to do, to do harm? Cause I don't, I don't want to do harm. Like none of us want to do harm. Right. But a lot of the good we do or the good we could do, we, we don't do. Um, and we might even do harm if we don't have the self-awareness. 
that man, oh, yeah. Ryan, you are preaching in a choir. This is, <laughs> I teach a, a spirituality and social work class for social work students uh, at the university that I'm at. And we definitely spend time on that introspection because of exactly what you're saying. Like if we're not doing that inner work or paying attention, like what is the result? Mm-hmm. I want to build on that and pull out a, a piece of the book or read a piece of the book, if that's okay with For you. Sure. Um, that's a little early on. You write, avoiding the deep questions and in-depth reflection is something North Americans are good at. Inner work seems optional in a society fixated on accomplishment, success, and achieving great things. Relatively wealthy Westerners have the privilege to not tend to the deeper questions of mission and global justice, but choosing that option that our privilege is al- that our privilege allows for also means forfeiting the opportunity to fully and authentically join God's work in the world. Engaging with the inner landscape of psyche and soul in whatever form that may be, psychotherapy, spiritual direction, contemplative prayer, etc., does not mean foregoing the outer work of justice. It is not an excuse to eschew action for contemplation or allow a focus on psycho-spiritual growth to preclude commitment to mission. Oh, man, brother, it's good. There's so many like blocks of quotes like this in the book that call out how important um, and really speak to what you're saying about if we're not paying attention to what's going on inside, what's what's happening. And I do commend the history that you've unpacked in this book too. And admit that there were portions of the book as I was reading, I just broke down in tears. Um, mm. Just imagining how we are repeating these cycles of pain and um, shame. And, and I'll, I'll get to, you know, we'll get to some of that in a little bit, but but I really do appreciate how you've unpacked the history and and are not just paying attention to the present now. And that might speak to your foreness, which, you know, your ability to be more past oriented is a gift in recognizing this history. But it's just so good. Yeah. What I love about all of that that Holly's talking about and what you you were talking about is obviously uh, I do therapy for a living and it, it, it reminds me so much of mm-hmm. this parallel there, right, of, hey, to know what why you're interacting the way that you're interacting now and how to do that from a genuine place. You have to understand, okay, where am I coming from? What is my history? Why do I view the world the way I view the world? And recognize that that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that that's the only way to view the world, right? right. That, that I'm coming from that place, but that that informs how I'm interacting with people and how right. I'm using that to get my needs met and what my expectations are. And, and you're blowing that uh, or I guess extrapolating that to, hey, we as a society, when we're trying to do missions, we're ignoring that chunk of it entirely and just saying, well, you know, I'll do this good good thing without unpacking really any of the, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm getting right. Right. And we live in at least uh, uh, a large segment of like the the Christian culture, Christian spaces are all about calling. It's almost like a culture of, of calling which again, it's not a bad thing, like calling, vocation, it's so, so vitally important. But what we often do, and what I did, and here's just side note, like everything I critique, I have participated in. Um, 
So there's the thing, like I, I critique from within and, and I begin with the critique of myself. Um, but in terms yeah. of like, I felt called, like going back to that seven or eight year old boy, like there is something uh, of calling there. And then as, as that, you know, if we fast forward to when I was, you know, 2021 20, in South Africa and Mozambique or 23 in, in Sudan, like I legitimately felt a, a call and I think I think that call was authentic I don't think it only emanated from the you know the other things I went over like getting my own needs met and that sort of thing but that shadow mm-hmm. side is there and the shadow isn't bad right like like even Jung as as you two know like Jung talks about the shadow and there's a positive side to the shadow and there's a negative side to the shadow mm-hmm. the problem is that when it when it's not looked at and brought into the light right like like we're we're broken human beings but yet we see calling as like untouchable in certain ways like like pristine and holy and like if you're called then that's the end all be all mm-hmm. and it's like whoa we need to rewind that and look at it yeah. differently because Yes, we are called. Yes, we are uniquely created to, to you know, in, inhabit the world in unique ways and work, you know, according to our gifts and our um, our skills and, and whatnot. Um, but if you look at, say, for example, if you feel called to be a nurse, you don't just show up, right? It's training, it's preparation, it's formation. Yeah. If you want to build yeah. a house, if you want to be an architect, you have to gain the skills, you know, the preparation, the training. But for some reason, missionaries, um, whether it's short-term, long-term, otherwise, um, almost have this sort of license to, okay, I'm called, so I go. I'm called, so I go. And it, and it you know, that in-between space, that kind of maybe a liminal space of training it in formation and asking questions and, and stuff, um, can be mm-hmm. avoided and just, and that's okay. Like that's celebrated when, when that's avoided. Right. Um, and so mm-hmm. like looking like that's a, that, that was a hard thing for me to, to wrestle with when, when that sort of paradigm was introduced to me, I wanted to push back against it. Like, no, 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 I'm, I'm called, you know? Um, and it's like, wait a minute. Yeah. You're called. And, 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 there's, you know, there's more to the story and our callings need redemption too. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. I, I do, I really appreciated though, how you linked in, you know, the training for other helping professions. Like you had the example in there, like a surgeon, you're not going to, you know, you're not just going to go walk in and put on some scrubs and start cutting someone open, like, or any other profession in which you are, the, the hope is to, to serve or to to Mm -hmm. help, Right. Right. Um, there still has to be some element of training, but calling out that this is a particular field in which that training is largely considered not needed. That's so interesting because if there's one thing that we should say, hey, I'm going to take this like as seriously as possible yeah. and mm-hmm. I want to exactly. do this – Yep. Full extent of doing it well and being prepared. Like it should be what we feel called to, right? Like that shouldn't be the thing that we're right. like, well, then I'll just go do it. That should theoretically, I mean, in my mind, we should say, if I'm called to this, I'm going to do it so, so well. And that, like we're saying, maybe that, that isn't yeah, how we treat it, you know, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, because I could see how some folks would be like, well, I'm called to this. And if, if there's no gate, like if there's no gatekeeping, like right. I'm just going to run right into mm -hmm. it. I'm just going to go. Like, let me right. go. Watch me do this. Especially if it's ego motivated. I could see how they wouldn't right. do that. And the but feedback is, so what, say somebody, um, okay, so say you're uh, a single 24-year-old guy. Um, you're, you know, uh, just a Christian American male and you feel the call, like you want to serve overseas in some capacity. And so you do your Google search, you find these mission agencies and you start contacting them. You find one that, you, you know, you resonate with the, the recruiter person. I don't think that's what they're called, but the person who, you know, deals with people who are wanting to, to join and come on board you speak with them, you like them, whatever, things go good, conversations go good. And then, so they, they don't emphasize it. What they often do is you do like a missionary boot camp, literally. It's like a two or three month thing. And they're like, they're like, yep, we have great training. Like we have this, we have this great program. We're going to teach you everything you need to know. You're going to learn from experienced people. You're going to be all set up to do this thing oh in, in 12, in 12 weeks. And so you're like, yeah, of course, like, great. Like, why would I go get, um, a degree in this, like an undergrad degree or, or a master's degree or, or something, you know? Um, and so it's sort of the, a lot of the mission agencies, perpetuate this because again they pay lip service to formation anyone who came on this conversation um who say runs a mission agency they'd be like yep we're all about it yep like this you know we we emphasize it but when in reality it's not a it's not the type of engagement that i'm that i'm talking about it, it doesn't have the the robustness and the in the nuance and just in in the focus on those categories intercultural competency, spiritual formation, looking at your, your psychological functioning and your story. Um, it's often practical skills. Like you'll learn, like you'll learn how to, if you're going to be a, in a remote area, like they'll teach you skills about how to live out in the bush. Like, again, not, not unimportant, but, um, it, it misses really vital pieces. Yeah. Well, especially the relationship building pieces that you talk about in the book and how, you know, some of the information that you have about how our brains are wired and how our cultures are, you know, in the, in like in America, we tend mm -hmm. to be a bit more individualistic, whereas in other cultures, they're more community focused. And so when you have someone who is coming from an individualistic culture, you know, then going out into a more community-based culture, how many things are they missing and not seeing or not understanding purely because of that, of lacking that cultural humility lens or willingness to learn and understand how those other cultures see and do things differently. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think a really important piece too around culture is the focus in terms of cross-cultural ministry and culture is always only the other culture, the culture um, where you're going to, mm, um, yeah. not our yeah. own culture, right? And so there's, there's never a focus on, okay, knowing about, for example, what, what is, um, 
what is the white dominant culture and how has that shaped me? Uh, what does it mean to live in a racialized world and how has it shaped me and how I, how I see people of color, including the people of color I'm going to be serving? Um, so there isn't, there needs to be much more of a focus on how we're shaped culturally um, in terms of both psychologically, neurobiologically, because the research shows that our brains are, are wired according to culture, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so not only is it, it, I guess we tend to, and I think maybe part of this is the privilege of, of being um, part of the white dominant culture, which again, I write in, you know, I can only talk about that essentially, because that's, that's who I am, a white, you know, a white Christian male. Um, but um, um, yeah, I guess we tend to see culture as only out there external to us but rarely reflect on our own culture and our own social location and how that impacts how we show up and how we enter into relationship and our assumptions and and beliefs and and literally like it'll form like the methodology in which we do mission as well Um, that's good Well, I, there's, there is one thing I also want to talk about before I want to make sure we touch on in this conversation and that's the ways in which you highlight shame and the role that shame has in all of this. And I actually really liked how you kind of tied it to the story of the creation story uh, with Adam and Eve and you tied it in with that, but highlighting how shame, what you write is that it's shame, which interrupts the ongoing creation of the world and how it um, is kind of getting in the way of this continual sense of creation and, and then shifting into how it contributes to this poverty of being. So I really mm-hmm. wanted to hear you talk about shame too, um, and how it's connected to all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Shame, shame is a big one. I think we tend to think about shame, like, um, generally, I think we tend to think about shame as, as like, um, a message of unworthiness, which it, which it is, which it is that, but I feel like shame lies at the core of, of so much, mm. whether it's um, psychopathology or communal, communal dysfunction. Um, like the author, uh, psychiatrist Kurt Thompson, you probably heard of his book or maybe read it, The Soul of Shame. Mm-hmm. He talks about how shame isn't an artifact of existence, but it actually has like a, what does he say? Like it, like it has a telos, like it wants to destroy goodness. It, it's like the the anti-creative force. And it's almost like an existential, I don't know, an existential reality. It certainly is, is an, is felt as as an emotion as well. But um, I think being shame, like informed of and sensitive to how shame works in individuals and communities, because there's often a sentiment, even if it's covert of blaming the economically poor for being poor, um, for, for their situation. And, and usually when we talk about mission cross-cultural ministry, we're talking about being in um, context of, of entrenched grave poverty, right? 90, 90% of the time, whether we're going to, whether we're talking about yeah, Haiti or South Africa or, or Cambodia or whatever, we're usually talking about context of poverty. But if we don't understand shame, it's hard to understand 
the cycle of poverty because shame is intimately linked to this to the cycle of poverty. And so I think in, when we engage in context of poverty, we really have to be aware that we got to reassign. It's important to reassign blame to systems that have created this poverty rather than just putting it on people, even if it's not like, hey, this is your fault, but it's it's only looking at, oh, what are they not doing? What are, you know, um, like simplistic answers. So I think when we bring in the shame piece and look at the, the shame poverty cycle, it allows us to have a better foundation for engaging and a better, we can create better programs and, and uh, practically speaking, we can, we won't, another piece is, is there's a danger that we're going to perpetuate that shame, even though we don't want to understand, we don't want to, we're serving or we're traveling to help. We don't want to do that, but we can very easily inadvertently perpetuate that sense of helplessness, that sense of hopelessness that are intimately related to shame where, where people believe that they're only created for poverty and that there's no way out if we don't understand how how shame works the interpersonal nature of it the collective and the, the collective and communal nature of it and the and the emotional yeah. nature of it and how shame can become an identity a personal identity and right. um a, a collective identity and that to me is the opposite of the gospel that mm-hmm. to me i mean i feel like the gospel is always a fresh word about about who who people are who we can be mm. And, and shame will do all it can to to destroy that, that movement to healing and hope and vitality and restoration and newness. Gosh, that is so good. I, there are so many other points in this book that I really wish our listeners would get to hear, but I'm going to strongly encourage them instead to go pick up the book (laughs) on their own and read it. If that's okay with you, <laughs> um, <Of course. laughs> it's a really good book, y'all. But the one thing I, I always, especially when we have authors come on who've um, written a book, I, I like to ask them, you know, before we wrap up, like what your hope is for this book. You've spent so much time and energy into creating this book and bringing it into the world and sharing your work with us. What is your hope for it? Yeah, I think simply put, I would just... I would hope that it would invite people more deeply into their own story in terms of how they see and engage cross-culturally, how, how, they, how they see mission. Um, my hope is that it invites wrestling. Um, I, some content in here might not be comfortable for, for everyone. If I read this book when I was 23 or, or 21 or whatever, a lot of it I would, I would push back on. And I also, my hope would be that it might save people from some of, uh, save some big mistakes or save some big, um, big heartache or, or, or disillusionment. Um, I wish I had a book like this when I was, you know, younger, when I was 15, uh, 15 mm-hmm. years ago. I mean, um, I wish I had something like like this and yeah i just i hope it it would invite more reflection and and maybe offer language you know i also think kind of a sort of a flip side of the coin is that a lot of people simply don't have spaces in 
uh, people around them to be honest about these questions. But I think a lot of folks who do go either on a mission trip or were involved in some sort of mission or development work have lots of questions because a lot of this stuff, I mean, these are common, common things. So yeah, I hope it helps give people language for what they're already sensing and feeling and intuiting, but yet they just don't, they haven't heard it before and don't have kind of conversation partners or people to, to really be honest with about it. Mm. So good. <laughs> so good. Hey, if you want to connect with Ryan, you can find him at ryankuja.com on Facebook. If you search for Ryan Kuja author or on Twitter at Ryan Kuja, or you can buy this book from the inside out, reimagining mission, recreating the world on Amazon or wherever else you buy books. Uh, if you want to connect with Holly, you can find her at hollyoxhandler.com or on Twitter at hollyoxhandler. If you want to connect with me, you can find me at robert-vore.com or on any social media at Robert Vore. Ryan, thank you so much again for joining us today. Before we finish out, do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? Oh, no, I don't, I don't think I do. Um, but it was a pleasure to be here and just to to interact with with you both. And I, yeah, I really respect the work that that each of you do. I've been on some podcasts that weren't all that fun. And I left kind of feeling like (laughs) desolate um, and kind of just like, oh, and this is the opposite of that. Like I just, yeah, I feel grateful. And um, to borrow Ignatius's word, um, consolation. So thank you. It was a joy to do this. Well, thank you so much for joining us. All right. Thank you. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com. A final note, if you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.